It is so good to see you and to be with you. Um, I said on Friday night, and I said I'll probably say it again today, it is so good to just be able to be back in the same room with people on Easter. I'll tell you what, as a pastor last Easter, I didn't know what to do with myself. Okay, I was kind of fidgety, like what do I do? Where do I go? How do I interact with people? It was just, it was odd, and there was a little bit of it that was like, okay, it was nice to not have responsibilities, but at the same time, it was just like, I, it was the first Easter where I was not in church somewhere in probably my entire life. I don't remember another time, right? Some of you are nodding at me because you've had that same experience. So it is so good to be back with you and to be able to hang out um, with those of you who are in the room, to be able to hang out with those of you who are watching online or if you're listening later, it is so good to see you. My name is Corey, um, and I'm the lead pastor here at Grace Family. And so I just want to say a special welcome if you're joining us for the first time, or I see some faces that I don't know, I don't recognize. We're thankful that you're here with us and interacting. I want to give us a little bit of a preview of what's coming in the next couple weeks. You know, uh, Pastor Andrew talked about the fact that we are launching some groups. And so next week, we're actually launching a new series called Squad. And so we'll throw the graphic up there. Some of you who are friend, sorry, fans of the show Friends will recognize what that kind of is modeled after we grab this series from a sister church of ours. And so we're going to lean into that and say, what does it mean for us to have biblical relationship with one another? Or what does it mean for us to simply live in community? And whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, I think you would agree that if we have people around us who are supporting us, caring for us, loving us, they're there for us when times get difficult, that is something that we all should have. And so whether you're a Christian or not, understanding what it is to have good community around us is an important part of life that helps us be healthy people and helps us move through life well together. And that's why we're launching groups together. That's why we're doing that in tandem with this series, to say we think that community is important. And so I would say to you, if you don't have a community to belong to, we would love for you to be here. We would love for you to join a group. We would love for you to get to know us. And please take us up on the offer Pastor Andrew made. If it's your first time we would love to give you a gift. Now, I brought, it's, it, I'll tell you what it is. It's a free cup of coffee from New Holland Coffee Company, okay? So if you really wanted to, and it, I mean, I've only been here for about five months, you could probably say your first time, and I would never know if you just want a free cup of coffee, okay? So we would love to, we're so glad that we get to partner with them, and we just want to welcome you in and just uh, get to know you a little bit better. So all of that to say, what is our conversation going to be like this morning? We've been walking through a series over the last couple of weeks called Jesus Instead of Me. That's why the graphic is back here on the wall. And we spent the last four weeks walking through the last couple of days of Jesus' life. So just those last hours, as he, as he was completely focusing his time and attention on the crucifixion. And we've been digging into, when we look at this story, how do we understand what Jesus was going through and how he responded how do we understand what the people around him were going through and how they responded? And what do we learn from that context? And I've said this before, and I'll say it again. The difference is this book happened, and it was a reality. It's historically accurate. If you read another novel or you read another book, what you're going to run into is at some point, the context is going to break down. It wasn't thought so far, right? So maybe you're a big fan of the Harry Potter series or something like that, right? And as you read through, you would enjoy the book and you would dig in and it was exciting and it was fun. I have people I know that would go to the stores at midnight to be able to get the newest book because they were so excited about it. And at some point, though, the context of that story wasn't thought about. 
even if you went to J.K. Rowling herself and said, what is the context about this, right? What color were the walls? What color were the carpet? What did they have for food? Who was sitting over here? At some point she would go, I, I never thought that far. But see, what we know about the story from the scriptures is that there were people that were there. There were real people involved. There were emotions involved. There were witnesses that saw what happened. There were feelings that day. There were, there were tears. There were emotions. There was all these things that were going into. And so we really tried to dig into this last little bit and say, what can we learn from the last hours, the last days of Jesus' life before he was crucified? And where we landed last week was we talked about the sacrifice that Jesus made and how he died on the cross and what that meant. And we asked the question, why would he die in such a way? Why, why would he die a death that was so excruciating, so terrible, so incredibly awful? Why would he do that? And the answer was because he wanted to be the one who would pay the highest price for our soul. See, we know that things bid on our time and our energy and our attention, right? Our job, our school, our, our sport, or whatever, we'll, we'll bid on what it wants from us. And it will make us a promise on the other side of if we pour into this, if we put our stuff towards this, there would be something that's a payoff on the other side. And Jesus says, but forget all of that stuff. No matter how much time or energy and attention they try and get from you, I have paid for every bit of it, and I've paid more for you than anyone else will. And he offers us not just peace in this life, but peace in eternity as well. And so that was Friday. And so Jesus dies on Friday, gets put in the grave. That's day one. He stayed in the grave on Saturday. That's day two. Midnight comes as Saturday turns into Sunday, and that's day three, but just a few hours later, things would change. And so where we're going to go today is we're going to go to Matthew chapter 28, and we're going to start in verse 1. You can follow along in your physical Bible if you have it. You can follow along on the screens here, or you can go to our website, go to our follow along tab. You will find there uh, all the verses, all the notes. You can email the notes to yourself, and you can even ask questions. So I would say if you're, if you're engaging with us for the first time and I say something that sounds a little strange or weird or whatever, and you want to ask a question, please submit that question. I would love to have that conversation with you about your question. But in Matthew 28, verse 1, this is what it says. Early on Sunday morning, as the new day was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to visit the tomb. Suddenly, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven, rolled aside the stone, and sat on it. His face shone like lightning, and his clothing was as white as snow. The guards shook with fear as they saw him, and they fell into a dead faint. Then the angel spoke to the women, Don't be afraid, he said. I know you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He isn't here. He has risen from the dead, just as he said would happen. Come, see where his body was laying. Verse 7, And now go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And he is going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there and remember what I have told you. The women ran quickly from the tomb. They were very frightened, but also filled with great joy. And they rushed to give the disciples the angel's message. And as they went, Jesus met them and greeted them. And they ran to him and grasped his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, don't be afraid. Go tell my brothers to leave for Galilee, for they will see me there. So this is the moment that changed everything. 
This is the moment when two women walked towards a tomb thinking it was going to be a tomb, and instead it was an empty grave. You know, one of the cool things that happens in in verse 9 is that in the version we just read, it just says, and they went and Jesus met them and greeted them. In another version, verse 9 says this, and behold, Jesus met them and said, greetings. Now, we read that in English and we kind of go, okay, great, he said hi. We don't really understand what's going on there. But if we read that in Greek, it was a common phrase. It would be like, hey, hey guys, how's it going? Could you imagine thinking someone was dead and then all of a sudden you see them walking down the street and they're just like, hey, how's it going? You would look at them, maybe scream and run away, maybe freak out, maybe run towards them. I don't know what you would do, but you would expect a lot more than, hey guys, how's it going? What's up? Jesus just casually says, hi. He greets them as though Almost nothing had ever happened. Why would Jesus do that? The first thing I want us to understand is that Jesus wasn't surprised he rose from the dead. You ever notice that? In fact, the angels, when they're talking to the women, he, they say he rose from the dead just as he said he would. The disciples had this information. The women at the tomb had this information. But, but let's be honest, right? If it's us and someone dies and they say they were going to come back three days later, How much weight are we going to put into that? Depending on, yeah, I just got this, right? (laughs) Depending on the person, maybe if it was like David Blaine or something, you're like, oh, maybe he could figure it out. But like anybody else, you're like, no, I'll believe it when I see it. But it wasn't a surprise to Jesus. Because this was the fulfillment of everything he had come to do. And so I think he was kind of having a little bit of fun with them. When he just goes, hey guys, <laughs> he's like, I'm just like, nothing happened, just like I thought it would. I'm here, just like I said I would be. Are you surprised? A little bit of that. You know, verse 8, it says that the women ran quickly from the tomb and they were very frightened, but they were also filled with great joy. We're going to come back to that phrase in a little bit, but in contrast to Jesus, who was not surprised that he rose from the dead, what about the women? I would say this, they had dedication, but they had no expectation. This is not me putting these women down. Listen, the fact that Jesus chose to show these women that he was risen first is incredible. We're not going to get into it a lot, but the fact that it was a, a woman's account that came first, that Jesus was risen from the dead, was the opposite of what the disciples would have done or the gospel authors would have done if they were trying to tell us a lie. Because their account would not have counted as valid just because of the times but when the women go to the tomb that day they're the ones who this truth gets revealed to but here's how they were going to the tomb they were going to the tomb as we would go to the grave of somebody who we lost a few days later and maybe you've been there you've had a friend a family member a parent and you've buried them and a few days later you came back to sit by the grave you came back to just sit and be there with them, to kind of be with them a little bit longer, whatever that means, right? That's what they were coming to do. Maybe they were hoping to get into the tomb. Maybe they were hoping to see Jesus, but they were coming because they were dedicated. They loved him and they wanted to spend time with him, but they were not expecting what was going to happen. Can I pause for a minute and talk to those of us who are committed, we would say we are committed followers of Jesus, Let me ask you a question. When we show up to church on Sunday mornings, 
Do we show up out of dedication or do we show up in expectation? The reason we meet in church on Sunday mornings is because that's the day Jesus rose from the dead. So when we come to church, not just on Easter, but any other Sunday morning, it's us giving ourselves a weekly reminder that we would come back and we would worship and we would learn together on the day that Jesus rose. And I know it's difficult for me. It can happen to me. Maybe it happens to you. I show up sometimes or in other times in my church life, I've showed up. Why? Because I'm dedicated to it. I show up because I'm supposed to. I show up because that's what I've always done. I show up because I'm supposed to serve and give and do all the things. And I want to see my friends. And But there's there might be very little expectation in my heart of what God is going to do that day. We could show up and be dedicated even if the tomb was still empty. Or still, sorry, if it, Jesus was still in it. We could show up on Sunday at the tomb to be thankful that Jesus lived. And he could still be in there. We could show up to the tomb and have him still be in there and just honor him. But the difference is we don't show up on Sundays just out of dedication. We show up in expectation of what Jesus is going to do in and through us as individuals, and as a church. So I would challenge us, even those of us that call GFC home, when we show up on Sundays, let's show up expectant. Let's not show up as, as though the grave is still shut. We're just going to honor Jesus and sing things because he was a good guy. But let's be expectant because he is alive and what he's going to do through us. Let's keep going in Matthew chapter 28. We'll start in verse 11. It says, while they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. It's a very interesting piece of the story. The guards that are at the tomb, they realize they're in trouble because they let the dead guy get away. How would you like to be that guy amongst your friends, right? Your one job was to keep the dead guy in the tomb. You couldn't even do that. So they have to go and they have to report what they saw. And when they get there, the chief priests say, okay, listen, we're going to make this up. We're going to say the disciples stole the body. Here's a ton of money to keep your mouth shut. You go do your thing. We'll keep you out of trouble. It had to be a significant amount of money because if word got back that they were the ones who let him get away, they probably would have been killed. And so it had to be enough money that they would say, you know what, I'll take the risk. So they pay them off and they start this lie. The question that we have to land on, what we have to do is, is look at the account of Scripture and say, what, what am I going to do with this information? We just saw what the soldiers did, and we'll come back to that later. We just saw what the chief priests did, and we'll come back to that later. We also just saw what the women did. They got this information, they had the evidence, and they all responded in a different way. The question is, what are we going to do with it? The difficult thing is, like I said previously, um, it's not an easy thing to believe someone rises from the dead. It's not a logical sentence to say. It's opposite of what happens to someone who has died. And so what do we do with that? 
And there are a lot of things that can go around and, and kind of come back against that phrase and what do I do with that? How do I justify the fact that the tomb is empty but Jesus isn't in it? What do I do to kind of logically go through that? Well, we're going to talk about a couple of things that people might say today. And so we would ask this question, was it a lie? Was it a legend? Was it a legitimate claim? We just heard about the lie. The lie was maybe the disciples took the body and stole it off and sent it somewhere else. They buried it somewhere else. They hid it somewhere else. They got rid of it. What about a legend? We're going to go to a different passage really quick. We're going to go to 1 Corinthians 15. I'm going to start reading in verse 3. This is what Paul says. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So let's pause just for a second. Catch those three things, right? What does he say? Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, and he was raised the third day. Okay, so you've got the basics right there. He's reiterating that to his audience. Okay, let's keep going in verse 5. And that he appeared to Cephas, that was Peter, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. And he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. So here's what we know. We know that the soldiers and the chief priests decided to go with a lie to explain what had happened. The other argument that would maybe come up is some people today and throughout history would say, well, maybe it was a legend that kind of just grew out of proportion, right? Someone started this story about Jesus and over time, over the 2,000 years or so that we've gotten to now, it's just completely grown. And, and Jesus never really did rise from the dead, but some people would say that he did. And maybe they just felt like the story kept like whispered down the lane, right? Things just kind of get changed over time. And what happens with that? So some people would say, well, it's just a legend. He never really rose from the dead, but someone started this lie and it continued and it just got bigger and bigger and bigger. And so we've got the story that we've got now. Can I help us understand the problem with those sayings or with those things that we just brought up? First of all, a lie must have a motive. A lie must have a motive. Second of all, a legend must have mistakes. And third of all, a changed life is living proof. Let, let me walk through those a little bit. A lie must have a motive. Now, the motive would have been for the, for the disciples, right? Let's say they actually did steal the body of Jesus. Here's what that would have meant. That would have meant basically a bunch of fishermen overtaking some Roman centurions in order to take the body in the first place. Okay? So again, they're coming up. They're, they are not battle-tested at all. Some of these guys may have still been teenagers coming up against these Roman soldiers who are armed. They have armor. They have spears. And having to get past them, take them out, roll the stone away, get the body out of there and take it somewhere else. The motive there would be, well, they wanted it to seem like Jesus did something that he didn't actually do. They wanted Jesus to be the person they hoped he'd be, and then he died. So they tried to keep things going. But the motive ends there. Because when we look at what happened to the disciples after Jesus rose from the dead, their lives got a lot worse. In fact, the Romans decided they didn't like the Christians, so they persecuted them. The Jews had, some of the Jews had never liked the Christians, so they were persecuting them. 
And all that this claim brought on the disciples was more persecution, and some of them were even killed for what they were saying. They didn't get any money. They didn't get any power. They didn't get any status. And yet some of them were willing to die for what they believed. See, I don't think there's a real motive. Somebody at some point when the disciples were being crucified and killed for what they believed, someone would have spoke up and just said, just kidding, we hit him over here. Don't kill me, this isn't worth it, it's all a lie. Because who would die for a lie? There are things that we would maybe even die for if we know that they're true. But if I know it's a lie, why would I die for it? And so the motive for the lie falls apart. The second thing, a legend must have mistakes. Why did I read us the passage from 1 Corinthians? Well, let me explain something. When we look at the Gospels, the Gospels were actually written about 50 to 60 years after Jesus' death. Okay? Now, why were they so far later? Why would somebody wait so long to write this down? Does that hurt the account? Well, let me explain a little bit. Think about the time frame that Jesus lived in. There was no printing press. Okay? There wasn't a way to take words, take a book, take an article, and copy it over and over and over and over again without a very painstakingly long process. And so if you were an eyewitness to what happened, what you would do for the rest of your life was you would tell everyone your story and tell them what you saw. And so at the end of your life, you would, when you wouldn't be able to tell that story as an eyewitness anymore, you would write down your story so that that could be handed off as an eyewitness account. And so when you do the math, you figure some of these guys were in their 20s, maybe into their 30s. You go uh, 50 to 60 years later, you're talking 80, 90 years old. This was They were written when these guys were getting ready. They knew they were going to die soon. And so they wrote it down so that their firsthand account would live on past them. But for Paul in 1 Corinthians, those letters were written about 15 to 20 years after Jesus was around. So think about that. Many of us in this room are older than 15 to 20 years old. You would remember things that happened 15 to 20 years ago. And if we sat down and have a conversation and you said to me, oh, I was there 20 years ago. This is what happened. This is where I was. This is what I experienced. If you were there, I would believe you. I would know for sure that you were telling the truth. Unless you were lying, but I would assume you were telling me the truth. And so why is it so significant that 15 to 20 years afterwards, Paul is giving us this information? Well, 15 to 20 years after an event is not long enough for it to become a legend. It's not long enough for the story to change so far that the eyewitness accounts aren't still valid. In fact, Paul says Jesus appeared to over 500 people. He said those, most of those people are still alive. So if you're 13 and you weren't around for that, go find someone who was there. They'll tell you what it was like. It's not long enough for it to become a legend. It was widely accepted at that moment in time that this was actually what happened with the eyewitnesses. And Paul was writing to the churches. He wasn't writing at the end of his life. He was writing to spread the word of what he knows happened from the eyewitnesses. So a lie needs a motive. I think the motive breaks down. A legend must have mistakes. Eyewitnesses, over 500 of them and more, they would be able to tell us what was going on. There wouldn't be mistakes, at least as far as the fact is he died, he was buried, and was raised. Those facts would be set in stone. But what we learn from these accounts and what we see is that the changed life of the disciples and the people that knew Jesus, that saw the empty tomb, is living proof. 
It's proof that the people that saw this firsthand believed it beyond a shadow of a doubt that the person they knew, that the, the Jesus that they spent time with, the Jesus that they ate with and hung out with and spent time with and walked down the road with, they were undoubtedly sure that it was the same Jesus that they saw rise from the dead. So the question is, what will you do? What will I do with the evidence? Now here's where it can get tempting. If you are a committed follower of Jesus, sometimes maybe a pastor will get to this place in the message and you start to think, okay, now he's going to tell the gospel. I know the gospel. I understand. This is Easter Sunday. I've heard this before. Listen, don't check out on me. Because I have challenges for us too, as followers of Jesus, as we lean into some of these accounts and the way that these people responded that will challenge the way that we respond in our daily life too. And so I want to walk with us for, through four different groups of people that we've seen respond. The first group of people is the women. We mentioned this phrase earlier. They had fear and great joy. Well, what does that mean? Fear and joy don't usually go next to each other, do they? I mean, some people really love scary movies. So if you're going to see a scary movie, you get scared, you're, you're really enjoying that, right? But usually those two things don't go next to each other. So what does it mean that they had fear and great joy? The fear isn't like a scary movie. It's not fear as in I'm terrified of Jesus now. I want to run away from him. This is too scary for me. The fear was an awe of who he was. It was the understanding that they thought they knew him. They thought they realized who he was. And yet he showed them something that was beyond what they could have ever understood. And so it changed their perspective of him forever. And then they had great joy. Why would they have great joy? Because they thought that death had the last word. They had put their time and their energy into following Jesus. And then when he died... They thought death had the last word. They thought the ride was over. And yet this is what was true. If Jesus really did rise from the dead, he has the last word. And they realized in that moment that Jesus could do anything. I mean, they saw him. They saw him walk on water. They saw him raise other people from the dead. They saw him heal people. They saw him do all these things. But when, when death came to him, they thought maybe... He didn't quite have it after all. And yet in that moment, they realized that he has the last word. Can I, can I ask you a question? What, what have you given the last word to in your life? What have you allowed to kind of define how things are going to be? Is it something like addiction? Have you allowed that to reach into your life and say, well, this is just who I am. This is what I'm going to struggle with. Is it divorce? Something that you thought was going to be a certain way in your life, and now it's another way, and that has just kind of defined who you are. Is it failure? These things that we allow to have control sometimes, it kind of causes us to go through life like the women went to the tomb. This is just the way things are now. It's sad. It's a little bit depressed. It's, it's I hoped for more, but it's not there. Listen, when we allow Jesus into our lives, he has the last word. Those things don't get the last say about us when Jesus is the one that we follow because Jesus can overcome anything. So no matter where we are on the scale of follower of Jesus or not, 
we can allow those things to have a say, that they don't have the right to have a say. When we hand our lives over to Jesus, he gets the last word. The second group of people that I want to talk about is the chief priests. And they simply ignored the evidence. Remember, they get a firsthand account from the soldiers. This is what happened. This is what appeared. An angel appeared to us. If someone said an angel appeared to you, wouldn't you dig a little bit deeper into that conversation to understand what was going on? But they decide, no, 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 we're going to take this information, even if it is true, we're going to start a lie, we're going to pay you off, we're going to just pretend it never happened. I would plead with you, if this is one of the first times you're hearing this conversation, don't be like the chief priests. Even if you don't believe anything else we've said, dig into it and figure out what you believe about Jesus. Take this information and say, what, what does it mean to me? How do I apply it? Does it? Is there any validity to this? And the problem for the chief priest was that if Jesus really did rise from the dead, it has to change their perspective, or it has to change my perspective, and it would have to change their perspective from he is Lord to I am not. For the chief priests, they were the bigwigs of religion at that point. They had control. They got to make the rules. They got to enforce the rules. They were in control completely. When Jesus came, they didn't like him because he rocked the boat. And they didn't have control over him. And they didn't like what he said. And they didn't like the way that he would relate to people. So they killed him. When he shows back up, instead of going to him and just saying, you know what, maybe I was wrong. Let's go see if he's really, let me go see the empty tomb. Let me go see if Jesus is hanging out somewhere over here. Let me have a conversation with him and see if I believe this too. Instead of that, they would rather keep their own perceived control over their life and say, I'm just going to ignore the fact that Jesus is who he says he is. It can be really difficult, especially for adults, to turn our lives over to Jesus. And it can be really difficult, even if we are followers of Jesus, to turn our lives completely over to Jesus. Because we have to be willing to say that he's Lord and I'm not in control. It can even be easy for us to say, yeah, Jesus, I know you died and you rose from the dead and that's awesome and I'm going to give this part of life to you, but I want to hold on to this part. I want to hold on to my finances. and I'm going to keep control of that. I know, Jesus, I know that you died and rose from the dead, but I want to, I want to keep control of my career. I'm, I'm going to keep this one for me. I, I know you died and rose again, but I want to keep control of my family decisions. What are we really saying? I know that you should have complete control. I know that you have the last word over everything, but I want to hold on to this. And we ignore what Jesus did. We ignore the truth. Because the truth is if we hand it all over to him, in better hands than it could ever be with us. The third group is the soldiers. And they try and walk away with blissful ignorance. In verse 4, we'll go back to verse 4 quickly. It says, and for fear of him, meaning the angel, the guards trembled and became like dead men. The angel shows up and they lose consciousness. That's how incredible it is. They get knocked over, they fall down, they, they lose consciousness. A few verses later, just later in that day, so they took the money and did as they were directed. They didn't want to deal with it. They didn't want to believe what had happened. And they were more worried about what they could do with the money 
that they were offered than what it meant that an angel showed up to them. Now, the thought is that maybe at some point, some of these soldiers actually did become followers of Jesus because how would we know all this information, right? Someone on the inside would have had to pick it up and say, you know what, I was there. Maybe they took the money and said, forget it. I'm going to go follow Jesus instead. Maybe they took the money and then went and followed Jesus anyway. I don't know. But at some point, some of them probably gave some, some information over and maybe decided to follow Jesus. But the problem is, guys went from seeing an angel in the morning to deciding they would just never tell anyone about it again because of some money. Here's what I think they did. They gave only passing attention to things that mattered, and they gave too much attention to things that would pass. They gave only passing attention to things that would matter and too much attention to things that will pass. They brushed off this appearance of an angel and the empty tomb because they gave more attention to things that will go away. Can I help us understand that for a minute? We can do a lot in life to make money. We can do a lot in life to get stuff. We can do a lot in life to build status. And all of those things can go away one day. There can be a fire. The stock market can crash. You could get fired from your job. And all of those things are going to go away. And too often I spend too much time worried about things that will pass away, that will go away, that won't be around one day. But if Jesus really rose from the dead, joy and true fulfillment can be found in someone that can never be taken away. Those soldiers thought joy and fulfillment would come through that money. And they were willing to ignore Jesus because of it. Be easy to look at them and say, man, you guys are stupid. Why would you do that? But I know I do that. I spend too much time thinking about things that will go away, that will pass away, that won't last past my lifetime, and I ignore where my focus should be. It goes back to the idea of, will I turn over everything to Jesus? And if we do, if we find joy and true fulfillment in Jesus, no one can take away from him the fact that he rose from the dead. No one can take that away. It will never change. It's historical fact. It's just not going to be different. So things that I can amass that I can lose, they'll go, they'll go away eventually. But the fact that Jesus rose from the dead is never going to change. So when I put my trust for joy and true fulfillment in him, I know that it is in someone that will never fail. The last group is the disciples. And they worshiped through doubt. And this is where I want to land our time this morning. In verse uh, 16 and 17 of Matthew 28, it says this. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him. But this last phrase, but some doubted. They saw him walk on water. They saw him heal people. They saw him bring people back from the dead. And then they saw him die. They saw him put in a grave. And they saw him alive again but they still doubted. Again, it would be easy for me to look at this and go, man, the disciples were so stupid. Like, how would they not believe this at this point? But when I'm really honest with myself, and maybe you'll find this too, I doubt sometimes too. There's days when I think about 
the reality of what I'm telling you to believe, right? I'm telling you to believe and turn your life over to the account that says Jesus died and rose from the dead. Again, not a logical statement. And yet, the disciples doubted too. And I think some of the time when I, as I was growing up, I thought being a Christian or turning my life over to Jesus meant I would never doubt again. That I would just be sure of everything for every day in my life. About Jesus, at least. There's days, right, where things happen and you just go, what? I don't understand what God is doing. Do I really believe what I say I believe? Is this really something that can I can just like jot down and be done with and not think about ever again? Here's what the disciples realized. If Jesus really rose from the dead, we can have faith when the unexplainable meets the undeniable. I can't explain to you how Jesus rose from the dead. I can't give you the science, the physics, the way things worked out and how this actually came to be. We can't, we can't do it. So it's unexplainable how Jesus did what he did other than saying he's God. Okay, I can't give you the science behind that either, right? There's no, there's no way to easily put this, and there's no video of him walking out of the grave. But here's what I think is undeniable. The accounts we have are historically accurate by all measure. And the people that saw Jesus, the eyewitness accounts, believed that he did what he said he did. And so even when I can't explain life, I have to come back to what I know is undeniable. I have to go back to square one and say, I know the undeniable truth is that Jesus died and rose again for me. He died instead of me and he rose again so that I could have life. So if that's true, nothing else can shake that. Here's what I see sometimes that kind of breaks my heart. I see people look at the church or look at other pastors or look at other people in the church and they say, because of what that person did to me or because of what that person was involved in or because of what this church did, I can have nothing to do with church and because of that, I can have nothing to do with Jesus. Listen, that makes no sense to me because then we're defining Jesus by what another human has done. What Jesus says about that human is the same thing he says about you and me. He says, I know that those people are messed up. I know that they're sinners and I died for them because of it. So don't, we can't look at Jesus and define him by what other humans do. We have to look at Jesus and say, what do I believe about him specifically? What I believe is true is that it's undeniable that he died and rose from the dead. The last thing I want to say to us today is that the proof the disciples wanted from Jesus was far less miraculous than the proof they received. What the disciples wanted was for Jesus to overthrow the Roman government, many of them. They thought the Messiah would come. They thought they would be out from under this bondage to Rome, and they would be able to kind of do their thing, right? That, that Israel would rise to power, and they would be able to move forward. Jesus dying was not part of their plan. But can I ask you a question? What would be the proof that you would need to decide to follow Jesus? Maybe we would go through a list and we would say, well, I need to make sure he was a good guy. I need to make sure he never really did much that was wrong. I think he checks that box. I think from the scriptures we know that Jesus 
didn't sin. And I think if you look at any other historical account from when Jesus was around, they have nothing bad to say about him. Even the people that didn't decide to follow Jesus, they never said that he was a bad guy. They never said he did anything wrong. In fact, they would elevate him as a leader and a speaker and maybe even a prophet. Okay, so if he checks off the good guy checkbox, what about the next one? Well, maybe he would need to make sh- we would need to make sure he was a really good leader. And all the things that he taught would need to be profitable for me in life. And here's what I would say to you. Even if you're not a follower of Jesus, I think if you followed the teachings of Jesus, that would be a positive thing in your life. Love one another. I think we could all w- stop right there and just work on that. Care for widows and orphans. Honor other people. That's what Jesus would ask us to do. Forget the religion aspect of it. What Jesus taught was stuff that we should all live by. Okay, so what he, he was a good guy. What he taught we could take to heart, and he was a good leader. What else would he need to do? What if he died and rose from the dead? Then would you believe him? I think the undeniable truth is that that's exactly what he did. For the disciples, they were looking for other proof. And that caused them at times to doubt. I think the times we doubt is when we put our own need for proof, we put our own desire for proof. Jesus, if you just do this, I'll believe you. If you just did this, then I could know that it was true. But that's not the proof we need proof we need is what Jesus handed us, and no one else has proven in the history of the world that they were worth following more than Jesus. So before we, we wrap up today, I have two challenges. One is for those who have decided to follow Jesus already. The other one is for people who haven't decided to follow Jesus yet. Let me talk to those of us who would say we are committed followers of Jesus first. My question to you is simply what we talked about previously. Have you turned over every aspect of your life to Jesus? You might say, well, that's a difficult thing to answer. I don't, I don't know. It depends on the day. Well, let, me, let me go back to what we talked about with the women. And when they got to the tomb, let use this as your test. If I am completely turned over, my life has turned over to Jesus, and I am completely given to him, I think the way you come to church on Sunday morning is a litmus test for how you can define where your life is. If you show up to church and you do it out of dedication, first of all, I'm thankful you're here. I'm glad you come. But if you're just doing it out of dedication to say, this is what I do. This is the practice I've done. This is my checkbox for the week. You've not turned everything over to Jesus. Maybe you've turned over your Sunday morning schedule to him. But if you come expectant of what Jesus is going to do, that would be an indicator that you've turned over your life to him. Well, why do I say that? Because if we come expectant and our lives are turned over, then we're open to the things that Jesus is going to ask us to do that might not be comfortable. It's not so much about dedication anymore. It's not so much about checking a box. It's not so much about just doing what we think we should do. But it turns into actually actively living out what we say. And so I would challenge us as followers of Jesus. Is that the way we show up? Is that the way we show up in life? Expectant 
of what God is going to do? And if we don't, maybe we have some work to do in our personal life. But for those in the room or listening online or listening later, you could be listening three years from now, right? That haven't decided to follow Jesus, I would just ask the question, is that something you're willing to make the decision to do today? Nobody wants to twist your arm, but if you believe what I said today, that Jesus died and rose again, that he died instead of you, and that he rose from the dead, and you've never had that conversation with him, you've never indicated that, you've never said to God, I want to turn over my life to you and I want to follow you. I just want to give us the chance to do that this morning. So if you would, if everyone would just close your eyes, bow your heads. For those of us who are followers of Jesus, I would ask you to pray for the hearts and minds of people right now. And I'm not going to make this long. I'm not going to make I'm not going to embarrass anybody. I'm not going to do anything crazy. But if you would like to have that conversation with Jesus today and you say, "You know what? I've never actually decided to follow Jesus before and I I think it's worth doing that today." I'm going to pray a simple prayer. You can say it to yourself in your mind and there's nothing magical about this prayer. It's just you having a conversation with God and saying, "I recognize who you were. I recognize you came to earth as a human. I recognize that you died for my sin. I recognize that you rose from the dead, and I want to turn my life over to you. If you do that today, the, the Bible tells us that you will seal your soul for eternity with Jesus. So just pray this quietly after me. Dear God, I recognize that I am a sinner and I have done wrong things. And those things separate me from you. I also believe that you died instead of me, that you were buried for three days, and that you rose again on Sunday morning. And I want to turn my life over to you. I want to follow you. Jesus, would you save me? If you prayed that again, I'm not, I'm not going to embarrass anybody. Everyone's eyes are closed. If you prayed that prayer, would you just... Raise your hand and let me know that you did. Just give me an indication. I see I see a couple hands. You can put them down. I'm just going to pray to wrap our time and we'll we'll sing a little bit. Lord, I I'm so thankful again <laughs> that we can be together today. That we can sing worship to you, we can sing songs to you, we can remember the day that you rose again. And I pray for those two hands I saw go up today. We're thankful that they were here. We're thankful for the way that they have indicated their decision to follow you. I pray for those of us who made that decision before today that you would show us the ways that we need to turn our lives over to you, that we would live our lives expectant of what you are going to do and not just simply out of dedication. We're so grateful for the gift of life that you've given us. In Jesus' name, amen.